0: Well, hello there. I'm really glad that you've decided to join us today. And before we jump into our text, which is going to be in the book of Luke in chapter three, so if you want to turn there with us, you can uh, do that right now. I want to just give you a little bit of a heads up about something that we offer here on a fairly regular basis at Inland Hills Church. That especially if you're newer to joining us, maybe you've been hanging out online for a few weeks or a few months. Uh, I would love for you to know more about this community, what this community stands for, and how you can be an important part of the mission that we all hold together collectively. And so the next best step for you, if that's you, is to join us for a class called Activate. It's really like a four-week experience, and it's far more than just information. In fact, as part of this experience, you take a bit of uh, an assessment on yourself that tells you a little bit more about what drives you and what your personality is like and how that can link in and hook in really well to the mission that God has. And it's about Inland Hills Church, what our mission uh, is, and how we've been able to fulfill that over the last almost 30 years now. So I would love for you to know more about that. If you've been hanging around and you're interested in knowing more, this is a great way to do it. We're offering an online experience that you can join us from wherever you are. And it's going to happen over the course of four weeks, starting in February. So February 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th. To sign up, you can go to inlandhills.com activate. And I hope that you'll consider being a part of it. Now, uh, for the next couple of weeks, uh, several weeks, we're going to just be in the scriptures and we're going to be uh, reading the Bible together. So we've already started this together. We've uh, completed the first week and we're really looking at uh, this week, we- we've read the entire book of Luke. And so I thought that what we could do for each of these weeks is to use the opportunity as we're reading through the whole scripture to pull out some passages that maybe we don't preach about that often, or maybe that fly under the radar a little bit. A little bit, or maybe that seemed confusing to us, and it'd be helpful to have more context or more of a deep dive. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter three. We've looked at the whole book of Luke this week. Um, and again, if you, if you want to continue on with us uh, reading, we would love for you to continue to do that. If you haven't jumped in yet, it's not too late. Um, you can just go to inlandhills.com slash new year, and you'll find all the information there about how you can read along and be a part of our New Testament challenge, where we're reading through the New Testament over the course of eight weeks. But today we're going to jump into Luke chapter three, and we're going to look at this a uh, crazy interesting character named John the Baptist. So that's what we're gonna look at today. John the Baptist was uh, is, is somebody who, who we're told basically goes out into the wilderness and he lives off of locusts and he's got clothes made of camel's hair and he's just this very eccentric guy, but he follows along in the tradition of the prophets. We're gonna talk a little bit more about what the historical situation was of John in just a few minutes. But what you need to know kind of going into this is that the entire nation of Israel was essentially groaning for something to change. Uh, They were upset about the political situation they found themselves underneath the emperor of Rome. They were upset about the religious situation they found themselves in because the, the priests had let them down. And they were just feeling over and over that as a nation, something has to change. As individuals, something has to change. As we're seeking God, like we feel like we're praying and we're not hearing anything back and we continue to be captive and we're supposed to be this chosen nation, but nothing seems to be happening. We're supposed to bless the world in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh, but nothing's happening along those lines. And so it feels like something has to change. This is the way that all of Israel feels by the time we get to the first century. They've, they've not been in control of their own destiny for hundreds of years by this point, for about 400 years. And they're just feeling like collectively, individually, something has to change. So John ends up coming along and John ends up coming along in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, John is the final person who comes along in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, which means if you ever hear someone uh, say that they're a prophet or they're a prophet in the lineage of John or something like that, you just need to know that, that that doesn't exist anymore. So that person is not being accurate with what they've been called to do or who they are. John comes along in this tradition of the Old Testament prophets. And the Old Testament prophets, um, a lot of times when we think of prophets or we think of prophecy, we think of someone who's going to tell me what the future holds. What the Old Testament prophets actually did primarily was to remind the nation of Israel of things they already knew. They called the nation of Israel to live out the holy life that the nation of Israel was already supposed to be living out. They reminded them that, that God had promised to be with them, but that they were in, in return supposed to follow after God closely and set an example for the whole world of what it looked like to have relationship with God. And so what the Old Testament prophets do all the time is they call the nation of Israel back to God. They call them to repentance. They say, look, the road you're going down is not the road that God has for you. The role you're playing in the world is not the role that you're supposed to play. And so Israel, if you don't turn back to God, here are the calamities that are gonna befall you. They didn't just tell what the future might hold in order to let people have interesting information. Like just giving people something that was interesting was never the goal. The goal was always to reconcile Israel, to give Israel the opportunity to repent and come back to God so that they can continue to fulfill the role that they were supposed to have as the people of God. So just, and they did this in really interesting ways. So I thought we'd look at some notable prophets for just a couple minutes so that we can understand the tradition that John is coming out of here. There's, It's almost unfair to call them notable. All of the Prophets in the Old Testament are notable, but just a few that for lots of people come to mind immediately when you say the word prophet and you're talking about this Old Testament tradition. One was Ezekiel. And let's just keep in mind, these, these prophets did unusual things to make their point. For instance, God tells Ezekiel, and uh, camera operator, I'm about to lay down. I just thought you might want to know ahead of time. Uh, God tells Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 390 days. 390 days, he's supposed to lay on his left side in order to represent the sin of Israel, how how long they have turned their backs, how many years they've turned their backs away from God. So for every year that Israel has forsaken God and fallen to idolatry, Ezekiel is supposed to lay on his left side. And then then Judah, Judah also fit like Israel was broken up into two, into two parts, the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And then Judah is also fallen af, uh, away from God and God's idols. And so Ezekiel is supposed to lay on his right side for another 40 days to represent the 40 years that Judah has fallen away as well. So, th- this guy's supposed to be on his side for like 430 days, which, as we know, is not good. In addition to that, he's supposed to cook his own food while he's doing this, while he's kind of camped out representing this. And you gotta, you gotta keep in mind, is not normal behavior. Nobody would look at that and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Ezekiel's doing that, his one side and then the other. And we got, you know, John down here doing the same thing. And then, you know, uh, Skylar. Skylar's also got laying on one side and then the other. Yeah, like, oh, it's just a normal thing. No, this is really weird. Really unusual. And the Lord also instructs Ezekiel to cook his food over this period of time over human excrement to kind of represent the defilement of what Israel has done. And Ezekiel begs him, God, please don't make me cook over human excrement. It's so detestable. It's so unclean. And so God relents and allows him to cook it over cow excrement instead, just way better. And, uh, and that way people can see that like he's supposed to represent the whole nation, and how this entire nation has over and over again defiled themselves and walked away from God to worship false gods and false idols to look more and more like the nations around them instead of like the called out Distinct nation that Israel is supposed to be. So that's Ezekiel, and uh, he comes to mind if we're thinking about some prophets from the Old Testament. Isaiah, similarly, in order to you know, oftentimes these these prophets paint a word picture with their actions. They they help people understand the severity of how they've fallen away from God by doing something. Isaiah is instruction, instructed to walk around naked for three years. Now, he probably wasn't fully unclothed. He probably wore like his under tunic, his undergarment, but he's barefoot and mostly unclothed, possibly naked, depending on which commentator you read, for three years in order to paint a picture for, for the nation about what God is going to do to them. So like, it's just... You know, these were uncomfortable things they were asked to do. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, is one of the minor prophets, actually. This is a small book in the Old Testament. He is instructed as a picture of God's faithfulness to Israel to marry a woman to marry an adulterous woman. It's possibly a prostitute or it's possibly just a woman who decided over and over to involve herself in sexual infidelity. But he's supposed to not only marry this woman, but even after she cheats on him repeatedly, he's supposed to continue to take her back in. Now, this is a difficult thing to ask someone to do, but what's the picture here that God's trying to paint for Israel? He's trying to say to Israel, look, time and time again, you continue to walk away from me And time and time again, I continue to take you back. Like I invite you back. And even when you are going around and worshiping other gods and you're basically basically having an affair, you're involved in this incestuous relationship with other gods, like I continue to call you back. There continues to be a place here for you. So these Old Testament prophets are used to like, like they, they take these dramatic actions. And in all these things, they're really pointing to what the people of Israel already knew, which is that God has set you aside. God has called you to live faithfully to him. You keep falling away. If you don't come back, this calamity is gonna fall. And what always happens? Well, the people don't repent and the calamity falls. So so that's the pattern over and over and over again. In fact, the people are furious with the prophets. Why? Because when someone tells you that you're not doing what you're supposed to do, especially if deep down inside, you kind of know that. Maybe you would never admit it to yourself. Maybe it's just fully subconscious, but someone tells you like, this is not the way you're supposed to go. You get defensive and you start to think like, no, 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 it can't be all of us. We've all agreed together that this is the right direction to go. Must be the prophet. It's the prophet's problem. You're the liar. You're the one who's not correct. We need to do away with the prophet. So many times prophets were stoned or killed or or written off. And so the people of Israel, basically never repent, almost never repent, almost never come back to God. And so these prophecies that they gave, which is that if you don't repent, here's the punishment that's gonna happen. If you don't come back to God, God is going to be forced to remove his presence from you. If you refuse to be present with him, he cannot be present with you. And when he removes his presence, in his absence, you will find that he has placed this supernatural hedge of protection around you. And in his absence, that will no longer exist. You will be conquered by other nations. And so they are. Which is why by the time that John shows up out in the wilderness preaching a message to a group of people. They have been conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They have been overwhelmed by the Greeks and are now overwhelmed by the Romans. All of the things that the prophets have proclaimed would happen, have happened. And this group of people is beat down and exhausted and feeling like something has to change. Something has to change. And so in the book of Luke, in chapter number three, we are introduced to John the Baptist, who is following a a long line of notable prophets and painting word pictures for people. And a long line of notable prophets in telling Israel that they have to repent, that that's the thing that has to change. And so, check this out in Luke chapter 3 and verse number 1. We read this. It's going to start off with a bang. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Ooh, that'll preach, won't it? Man, that's a, that's a good passage right there. But actually, it is a great passage right there. It's a great passage right there. In fact, uh, you know, we might say today, like, ooh, what he's trying to do is position this event squarely in history. Remember last week, if you were if you joined us, we talked about how Luke is really making the point from Luke one all the way through the end of his gospel that this stuff really happened. And so here's what you need to know as far as this placement in history. Last week we looked where he said, I interviewed people. You can go talk to them if you don't believe me. I interviewed people. I put this narrative together like carefully. And so now he's going to give us exactly when John was out in the wilderness. And the way, the best way to do that, if you're writing in the first century, is to position it within things people know, like what was the reign of the different emperors at that time? Who was in charge, who was in charge of the Roman establishment, who was in charge of this particular area of the Roman empire, uh, who, was, who was overseeing the Jewish religious establishment. And so this is what, uh, this is what Luke is, is trying to tell us here, to position it squarely in history. Be like if today I, I was to try to write something for people in Southern California to read years and years from now. I was trying to tell them exactly when something happened. Maybe I would say something like, in the third year of the reign of King James over Lakers Nation, when Disneyland was in its 10th month of closure and the best restaurants were closed for in-person dining while the worst restaurants continue to offer drive-through service, right? Like I, I could paint some kind of picture that would allow people to know exactly when this thing happens so that years from now, when they look back, they could say like, okay, this is a real event. This happened in a historical period. We, we can find out precisely when these events took place. And, and a few things to note then about these particular emperors. Tiberius Caesar has taken over for Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is dead. Tiberius is already in some parts of the Roman empire being worshiped as a God at this point. In addition, we have, we have Pontius Pilate, who's going to play a major role later on in Jesus' prosecution. He was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria. Now, there are two Herods that are mentioned. In the gospels, Herod the Great is the first one. This is the one who's alive when Jesus is born. Herod the Great is the one that the wise men come to and they tell him that there's a new king and they're going to worship him. And he says, oh, well, on your way back, can you tell me where this king is? Because I would like to worship him too. When in fact, Herod the Great had no uh, desire to worship a new king. He had desire to make sure that no king was able to come in and take his place that no ruler was gonna come and remove what was in his mind rightfully his. Herod the Great was a Jew and he was given power by the Roman government to oversee this largely Jewish province of the Roman empire. And Herod the Great had a lot of building projects. This guy had built all kinds of things, but the biggest and the most memorable was that he had taken the temple, the temple that had been torn down as uh, Israel was conquered hundreds of years before and had, had been built up. But, but what they replaced it with was this small kind of minuscule temple that was rebuilt by some of the Jewish exiles in the sixth century BC. Herod the Great takes this temple and in about 20 BC, 22 BC, he decides to make this temple as as great as the first one and then to surpass it. And so about a 12 year building project begins that is finished shortly before the birth of Jesus where this temple now stands. This temple now stands as a huge symbol of both uh, Jewish religion, but also if we're honest, the greatness of Herod. Many men uh, spent much time building this thing. And this thing becomes so important as as kind of the, the, the crux, of Jewish religion. This is where everything takes place. This is where 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 the sacrifices are made. This is where the, the religion is really well established. And now it's got the mark of Herod the Great all over it. Herod the Great passes away in about 4 BC, shortly after the birth of Jesus Christ. And so his kingdom gets divided up a bit. And so um, Herod Antipas ends up being the, the Tetrarch of Galilee who was overseeing this at this time, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of and, and And the people, the people don't like either of these. In fact, something that's really interesting that will come up later, uh, Herod Antipas ends up having an affair with his uh, half-brother's wife, and that wife ends up divorcing Philip, which was, I mean, women didn't divorce people in the first century, but she did. And Herod ends up divorcing his wife as well. And they end up getting married. And this is just seen like for for all, like Herod is hoping to establish religious authority as well, right? This is a group of Jewish people. He's a Jew. He wants to be as great as his father was before him and his great grandfather was before him. And so he's trying to establish both like these building projects and trying to establish himself there. And he's also trying to establish himself religiously. But this person, is someone who has had this incestuous relationship. And so John the Baptist is gonna be very critical of what's happening here. And saying so you can't look to Herod for spiritual authority. This guy has let down the entire nation. Right, so that, that's gonna come up later. So he's he's placing this. And then Annas had already been high priest. Caiaphas was the high priest at this point. Um, lots of commentators believe that Annas was probably still held the, the title, you know, presidents of the United States. We continue to call them president even after they're no longer in office. So likely it was Annas that was still holding that title in Caiaphas. But this situates this in history, and this is kind of what's happening, right? People are disappointed in Herod. They're dis- they've always been the Jewish people have always been disappointed in Roman, uh, in Roman leaders, and they're disappointed in Caiaphas. Like nothing's working for them. Something has to change. So, Luke three verses three through four. He went into all the country around the Jordan. John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance for the of sin- for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So now we're going to look back at one of the great prophets, Isaiah. We're gonna look at what he wrote. And the author of Luke is going to tell us that these words that were spoken so many hundreds of years before were being fulfilled in John the Baptist. Here's, here's the words. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation." By this point in Jewish history, the people are longing for God's salvation. Something has to change. They'd had this idea that God was going to send a Messiah, someone to come and save them. And for most of them, they, they believed that the salvation would be from the Roman empire by this point, right? We've, we, we need to be in charge once again of our own destiny. We've learned our lesson. We wanna come back to God. But what John is gonna share with them is that they actually have not learned their lesson, that there continues to be those who are far from God. There continue to be hypocrites who are a part of Israel. But the people are crying out for something different. They're crying out for it. In fact, in fact we, we cry out for justice is essentially what we see here. Like it's, it's not fair that the Romans oversee us. It's not fair that our own religious leaders have, have disappointed us. We cry out for justice. Something has to change. So we continue. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So these are, these people coming out. These are Jews. A lot of them are probably Jewish leaders. They're coming out to be baptized and he's, he's doesn't have really kind words for them. He says that they need to repent. To repent, by the way, in, in, in the Greek word for repentance, it simply means to turn in a different direction. It means you're heading down one way and you make the determination, not just to apologize, not to just say, oh, sorry about that, but to actually say, you know what? The direction I'm going is wrong and I I see a better way over here. And I'm gonna gonna turn the direction I'm headed in. I'm gonna walk in a different way than I was walking before. That's repentance. So John is saying, look, it's not enough to come out here. What you need to do is move in a whole different direction than the one you've been moving in. John is in fact agreeing with the people. Look, something has to change. Something has to change. Go on. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham, for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is right. They, they always thought of themselves as God's chosen people. And, and, and indeed that they were. But if you if you start to just think of yourself solely as God's chosen people, as children of Abraham, and that's where you get your identity and it doesn't have anything to do with a personal connection to God. If there's no reality of God that's being shown to be relevant and real in your life, like that's not good enough, John is saying. Like, look, look out of these very stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, okay? Like there's nothing special about that. What a life that's actually centered on God shows is some kind of fruit. And that's what you're crying out for. Even if you don't realize it, that's the longing that you have. You you want things to change. Here's the good news, John seems to be saying. Look, look, everything is gonna change. There's already an ax at the root of the trees. The, The way that things are going, it's about to change dramatically. In other words, like God hears your cries. You need to know that God hears your cries and you need to know that things are about to change. So the crowd hears this and they says, okay, well, that sounds great. So what, what do we do with that, right? Like, well, what should we do then? The crowd asks. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. This is such a fascinating answer, by the way. There's over 600 laws in the Old Testament that the Jews and the rabbis would point to. Like so many commandments to keep, things to do or things not to do or things to do in a very particular kind of way. And so, so John is telling them, look, children of Abraham can be made out of rocks. There's nothing special about that. Okay, then what do we do? Like if things are about to change dramatically, like what, what should we actually do? And the first thing he, he says has almost nothing to do with the 10 commandments or these 600 laws. He doesn't say like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, much. right? He did, that's not his starting place. What he says is anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Why? He's pointing to the fact that when God shows up, justice shows up. Those of you who are crying out for something different, those of you who are saying this doesn't feel fair that we've been, had to live in the Roman Empire for hundreds of years. It doesn't seem like anyone's looking out for us. You need to know that if you follow after God, God will make you part of the solution to the problem. Why? Because when God shows up, justice shows up. Those of you crying out for it can actually be a part of it. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. It's always, if you're a tax collector in the first century, second century, and you're reading the New Testament, you gotta feel just constantly beat up as you read through this, right? Tax collectors are just so looked down upon by society. And so it, it, it's not enough to just say that tax collectors came to be baptized. Even tax collectors, like, yeah, even the worst of the worst, right? Oh, these guys again. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked, teacher, they asked, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Why did he say that? Because they kept collecting more than they were required to. This is why tax collectors were so hated. Why would he tell them this? Well, simply because when God shows up, justice shows up. Like if you wanna know what the world is gonna look like when God makes it right again, it's gonna look like a world where the justice that we've longed for, that we've cried out for, that we've recognized like it's not happening and therefore something has to change. It's gonna look like a world where God's justice rules and reigns. Well, then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? By the way, these are probably not Roman soldiers. Unlikely that Roman soldiers would be interested in going out to hear a Jewish prophet. These are probably soldiers in service of of Herod. These are probably Jewish soldiers. Then some soldiers asked him, and and what should we do? And he replied, well, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, interestingly enough, uh, inflation in the first century wasn't really something that happens like it does today. Like today, in the United States, at least, inflation is typically around 2%, 1.8 to 2.2% a year. And so every year, a lot of times, you'll, you'll receive some kind of raise, like a cost of living raise. This is not what this is about. Uh, John's not telling them like, uh, be content with your pay, therefore don't ask for a cost of living raise, right? Like, but some, some people take a passage like this and they pull weird applications out of it. So this, this doesn't mean don't, don't ask you know, your, your boss for a raise or don't ask for a cost of living raise. What often happened is that soldiers were unhappy with their pay and therefore, they would extort other people or they would accuse people falsely in order to essentially blackmail them. Like, if, if you don't pay me a bribe, you know, I'm gonna tell other people that you've done this. And if I do that, you're gonna be out of You might be imprisoned. And so he's saying, look, d- don't do that. Don't extort people. Don't accuse them falsely. Be content with your pay. Don't, don't try to use your position in order to gain an unfair financial advantage. That's not fair. Why would you say this? Well, when God shows up, justice shows up. Like, like when God rules and reigns, the wrongs of the world are made right. And a lot of times, if I'm honest, we struggle within the church to talk about the justice of God. Because if we talk about the justice of God, that means we, we have to talk somewhat about the wrath of God or the ways of God that, that, that don't to us seem like, well, if, if God's going to judge me, then he must not be loving. But in fact, God cannot be loving unless God judges God cannot right the wrongs without being a God who longs to see justice in the world. Like, you can't just take the love and not accompany it with justice or, or if it's, if it's just love. Like, and, and by the way, it's not that love is number one and justice is number two on God's list. No, God is love. John tells us we're going to look a lot more at that in the coming weeks. God is love. Justice is a part of the love of God. It's not to be separated out. God is not some kind of dualistic God that's like you, you've got love on one hand and justice on the other. You've got grace on one hand and wrath on the other. No, no, no. Because God loves. Because God loves you, because God loves the whole world, justice has to happen. Wrongs have to be made right. Judgment needs to take place. Without it, you simply can't have love, rule, and reign. And so when God shows up, justice shows up. The people were waiting expectantly. They were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, right? This one that we've looked for to come right the wrongs. So maybe like John's saying something has to change. He's agreeing with us. So what's happening here? But but John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. By the way, let's talk about this baptism of water for just a minute. Where does this come from? Why is John baptizing with water? Well, there were a few things that Jews would have known about water in the first century. The first story that comes to mind is when God saved Israel from slavery out of Egypt. In order to rescue them from the Egyptians who were pursuing them, God brought them through water, the Red Sea. The Red Sea was miraculously parted. The Jewish people walked through as if on dry ground. And then the seas crashed back together and the Egyptians were drowned and the Israelites we saved. Walking through water, passing through water has the significance in the mind of Jewish people that that is part of how salvation comes from God. When God saves, you pass through water. The other thing that's very interesting is that any Gentile, someone who was outside of the Jewish faith, who wanted to come into the Jewish faith, a part of that process was them being baptized as a a symbol of them being baptized into this faith, coming in and out. So John goes out to the desert and he's baptizing people. It's almost as if he's saying like that you need to just like a a new convert comes in to Judaism. You need to recognize that the way you have perceived your faith in the past, the way that you think about God judging the world, the way that you think about Israel being set apart. Like if you're just going to live your own life and ignore the justice of God, like you're not actually a part of Judaism as God set it out. Like You need to be baptized. You need to go into the water just as a recent convert would. You need to understand that a new thing is coming. So he's basing it on an understanding of probably the Exodus. He's probably basing it on understanding of how a new believer would come into the faith. And he's doing his own thing as well, which is saying that like this whole new thing is gonna take off and baptism is a part of this. Like There's just a lot wrapped up in this. People would have seen so much symbolism in the way that John is going about this. So, so who is more powerful than I will come? Someone who's more powerful, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Like this is so important because John is saying, look for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel has tried to follow after God and time and time, and time and time again, we failed. And the prophets came and they warned us to repent and we couldn't. And the prophets told us that we would be judged and we were. And we've cried out for 400 years now that God would right this seeming injustice that's actually justice and would put us in charge again. And that's not really what we need because here's the reality. We'll just go back and do the same thing we did before. God's given us this way to follow him, but here's what's true. We can't do it. We have failed over and over and over again. I agree with you, something has to change. And so he says that there is one who's gonna come after me. It's actually the whole reason I'm here. It's the thing that I am coming to prepare a way for. It's Jesus. And Jesus is gonna change things because for all the desire that you may have had to follow after God well, for all the desire you may have had to, to live a life of justice. It's very clear. It's very clear. Imagine for yourself, you can't do it. Something has to change. And so Jesus is going to come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he is going to invite every single person to follow after him. And some will choose to, and some will choose not to. And the justice of God must rule and reign and all of the evil and sin and darkness and injustice of the world has to be thrown away and swallowed up with unquenchable fire. But Jesus is gonna bring this gift, the Holy Spirit. And it's gonna change things for you. You can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can. And that's the gift that Jesus is about to bring. Now, the first people who heard this message would not have fully understood what it is that John is pointing to. It's not clear to me that John fully understood what he was pointing to. But John knew this, that Israel's long, long history of rebellion against God, failure, repentance, rebellion against God, failure, repentance, that history was coming to a close. Jesus was coming to change things and to make all things new. My son Jack is seven years old and a few years ago, he started to get really into drawing things. He started trying to draw like cartoons. He started off with little doodles, stick figures, that kind of thing. But then he wanted to start drawing Disney characters, Mickey Mouse, Winnie the Pooh and Spider-Man. But the thing is, as much as he wanted his drawings to look like the things he was looking at, right? He was, Oftentimes he'd put a picture of Nexus Spider-Man and he'd try to draw it, put a picture of Winnie the Pooh and he'd try to draw it. As, as, as hard as he would try, when he was first starting out, he just he couldn't do it. Like, he was really hard. He was still, you know, we're all, I mean, I'm almost 40 and I'm still trying to get a hold of my fine motor skills and he, he was too. And so he's, he's doing the best he can. And so sometimes he would bring me a picture with tears in his eyes and he would say, dad, it doesn't look like Winnie the Pooh. Dad, it doesn't look like Spider-Man. And, and it's true. Sometimes this Winnie the Pooh would, would look like a, you know, like a modern art kind of piece. It did not look like Winnie the Pooh. I couldn't even tell that that's what we were trying to draw here. And so, so sometimes it was not salvageable. Like I couldn't take this drawing of Winnie the Pooh and help him get it to a place where it really looks like Winnie the Pooh. But sometimes something that was supposed to be Winnie the Pooh, if I worked with him and I helped him to draw some extra lines and erase some that were there, sometimes a the drawing of Winnie the Pooh might make a really good spaceship. Sometimes a drawing of Spider-Man might look like a really cool Goofy. (laughs) Sometimes a drawing of Mickey Mouse might make a really neat Lego set construction if we were to draw it out. See, I just had to come along with him and show, give him some little, so like add a little thing here. Hey, let's do some little shading over here. Hey, why don't I add a little piece down here? And, and we, would, we would take these drawings that were not very good. Like you couldn't hardly tell what he was trying to do, but together we could work together and make it into something really cool. Something really cool that he was proud of. And for so many of us, we get to a point in our life and it feels a lot like that drawing that my son did. It's like, we hold it up to someone and we're like, this was supposed to be this, this is supposed to look like this. I had all these goals and hopes and dreams and thoughts of what life would look like, but look, I can't, it's not even recognizable to me anymore. I don't know what to do with this. And it just feels like failure to me. And there doesn't feel like there's a way out. And In the midst of that, we need to know that just like Israel, God hears your cries. And, and what John says is that Jesus is coming and everything's about to change. In fact, Jesus is coming and the Holy Spirit is going to, to be there for you. You need to know that help is on the way and that the Spirit loves you so much that you can take this life that doesn't look like the life that you would want it to live. But when the Spirit partners with you to live that life, your life can be made beautiful once again. It may never look like the thing you originally had in mind, but it doesn't have to because sometimes what starts off as Winnie the Pooh makes a fantastic spaceship. And sometimes what starts off as the life you would hope for actually makes a better life than you could have ever possibly imagined. That's the gift. That's the gift that Jesus brings. This idea that we couldn't do it anymore. We never were really able to and that Jesus is gonna come and along is gonna come a helper. And when the helper comes, our life can be made new. Justice can rule and reign in the world. We can be a part of the solution instead of being a part of the problem. It's why John says, look, when God shows up, justice shows up and you are to go forward and you are to be a part of God's justice in the world. Of course, you can't do it on your own. But there's one who's greater than me who's coming and he's gonna bring the Holy Spirit in fire and it's gonna change everything. God hears your cries, help is on the way. Everything is about to change. This is the promise that John makes in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel in the first century. But this is the promise that John makes you. Regardless of how you got to the place you are today, regardless of what disappointments, hopes and dreams you feel like lay tattered at your feet, One who is greater than John has come and he has brought with him the Holy Spirit and with fire. And things can change forever if you allow him to enter into your life. It's the invitation of John, but it's the invitation of Jesus. It's the invitation of the gospels and the entire New Testament. It's the way that the Christian church has very imperfectly, tried to live things out in the last 2000 years. And while we have individually failed repeatedly, the Holy Spirit continues to strengthen us as individuals and strengthen us as a whole. That's what you're invited into. And so in just a few moments, we're gonna partake of a meal that stretches back over a 2000 year history together. We're gonna break bread and drink of a cup and whatever you have at home that you've, you know, it's a piece of bread or Doritos or Tostitos or a pita chip, whether it's grape juice or red wine or milk or water, whatever you've got, you can partake of this meal with us. And this meal is just a symbol that we as a community have chosen together around the table and to eat and drink in remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us when he brought the Holy Spirit and fire and justice to the world and offered to change everything for good. Grab, grab those elements together. We're gonna sing after I pray and then we're gonna partake of them together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, we recognize that your promise to Israel in the first century is our promise now. Father, we are so thankful for John who came with this message and a long history of prophets to say like, it's obvious that things haven't worked before but things are gonna be different now. Jesus is coming. He's bringing the Holy Spirit and fire with him. The world will be different and your life will be different. God, I just pray that we take those promises of John, those promises of Jesus, Lord, and that we wholeheartedly follow after them today. Would you help us to be a light shining in the darkness of the world all around us? It's in Jesus' name we ask these things, amen. Mm -hmm. That Jesus would be arrested and tried He gathered together with the disciples in the upper room And he took these elements that they were very familiar with Elements of bread and a cup of wine That they had been using to celebrate God's release from Egypt The exodus for hundreds and hundreds of years And he redefines these elements for them And he says this bread This bread as he breaks it apart He says uh, when you gather together and you eat this Now I want you to eat this in remembrance of me Is My body broken for you In the same way he took the cup, he essentially said to them, from now on when you drink of this, you're not remembering the Passover, you're remembering me. You're remembering my blood shed for you for the remission of sin. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And now, Father, as we partake of these elements today, recognize that we join in with millions of Christ followers all over the world in using these elements to remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us and also Lord to remind ourselves of who we are to be in the world of people gathered together under the banner of Christ pouring ourselves out breaking ourselves open in order that the world may draw close to you Lord as you help us to use this meal as a reminder an invitation to community and a reminder and an invitation to continue to share and to live out your gospel message of Jesus everywhere we go. It's in His name we ask these things.
1: Thank you for listening to the Inland Hills Church Weekly Messages Podcast. To learn more about Inland Hills, including info about our church ministries and ways to get involved, visit inlandhills.com. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and leave a review so others can find our messages of hope and encouragement. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week.